At this point, Abraham is without rights and without possession in the land. And that is the posture of all of God's people in this world while we wait for the arrival of the promises. We are aliens and and yet residents in this world. And we often find ourselves without rights, without power, and without possession. And we find ourselves subject to the whims and mercy of other men, other people who do not know God and who do not care about the promises. This is the life of faith, and it has been for a very long time. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The people of God often are without rights, without power, and without possession in this world. How true that is and how timely that is as a reminder for us as we make our way through some very unusual times. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 23. This is an important chapter in the Bible, but you will have to listen all the way to the end to understand why that is. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now, this is a helpful verse, just in terms of reminding us that this story happens during the time when the lifespans were contracting to where they are now and where they are in the Bible after the time of the patriarchs. Sarah lived 127 years, which is about 1.6 times what we would consider normal nowadays, which means that she would have looked to us like she was in her late 30s in Genesis chapter 12, and she would have looked 55 to us when Abraham lied to Abimelech and when she subsequently gave birth to Isaac. That's just good to know. Verse 2 goes on to say, and Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, the phrase that Abraham uses to describe himself here is significant. He says that he is a sojourner and foreigner. The Hebrew is ger v'toshav, alien and resident. That is important because a resident alien was unable to purchase real estate. So hear that. At this point, Abraham is without rights and without possession in the land. And that is the posture of all of God's people in this world while we wait for the arrival of the promises. We are aliens and and yet residents in this world. And we often find ourselves without rights, without power, and without possession, and we find ourselves subject to the whims and mercy of other men, other people who do not know God and who do not care about the promises. This is the life of faith, and it has been for a very long time. Verse 5 goes on to say, The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, 
it is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now, Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Now, verses 5 to 16 preserve a fascinating example of ancient Near Eastern culture and etiquette. Everyone in the story pretends that they are disinterested in the process, but everyone is making sure that they can get the most out of the transaction, right? Take it, my friend. What is a field valued at 400 shekels of silver between you and me? He sounds like he would be happy to give it away, but by naming the price, which was probably exorbitant, he makes it impossible for Abraham to take it for anything less than that price. Abraham has to pretend like that, num- that number means nothing to him as well, just a, just a formal part of the transfer process, even if he thought the price was too high. Historians and scholars delight in all these wonderful little details in the story, but for our purposes, we need to notice that Abraham had no right to this purchase. He was landless and vulnerable, subject to abuse and extortion in the land of promise, even with respect to burying his dead. Verse 17 says, So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. Again, this level of detail is interesting historically because it helps to prove that this is an ancient document, not a much later creation. Derek Kidner, for example, says here, the reference to the trees in verse 17 is characteristic of Hittite land transactions, which were careful to specify them. The whole chapter seems to reflect the Hittite laws current in patriarchal times. Verse 19 goes on to say, After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, I mentioned off the top that the importance of this chapter is not as self-evident as, say, the importance of chapter 12 or 15 or 17 or 22, but it is an important chapter. This chapter reminds us that the patriarchs and the matriarchs died in faith. They understood that because of the promise of God, not even death could keep them from inheriting the promised land. More than that, they understood that the promises of God were ultimately about far more than the land of Canaan. We know that because the author of Hebrews says that. He says in Hebrews 11, 8 to 16, he says, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. 
By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So in this chapter filled with references to our story, the apostle speaks about Abraham and Sarah, and he says that even when they were as good as dead, even when their bodies were, po- were past the point of fertility, still they believed in the promises of God. And then once they had received the first installment, the first part of that promise in the birth of Isaac, not even death itself could keep them from believing that God would give them everything. He would deliver on all that he had promised, including the land, but more than the land. He says that they were desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. Ultimately, the apostle says, Abraham and Sarah had their eye on the prize to which Palestine only pointed. The land was a token of a greater promise still to come. A heavenly country, an eternal city whose designer and builder is God. That's why this chapter is in your Bible. Because it shows you the scope and length and height and depth of true and saving faith shows you a faith that has survived doubt and delay and even death. Thanks be to God. Well, that is a short chapter, but as we've just seen, it's an important one. And because it was such a short chapter, we're going to immediately now go into chapter 24. Here again is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you to Genesis chapter 24. This is a long one, so we better get right into it. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. I love what Derek Kidner says here about this senior servant. He said, this chief steward is one of the most attractive minor characters of the Bible with his quiet good sense, his piety and faith, his devotion to his employer and his firmness in seeing the matter through. 
If he is the Eleazar of chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, his loyalty is all the finer in serving the heir who has displaced him, almost as John the Baptist to his master. I like that. Listen, I understand that in the late 20th century, a lot of evangelical preaching was excessively moralistic. You know, we read the stories in the Bible as if they were a narrative version of the seven habits of highly successful people, when in fact the Bible is ultimately about fallen people, a gracious God, and a generous salvation. I understand that. True, 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 true. But we are supposed to learn from these family stories. The Apostle Paul said these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. So there is a pedagogical function to these stories. They are teaching us and showing us the way of faith. This is a narrative version of Proverbs 3, 6. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. That's what we see in this story. That's what this chief steward does. And it is not wrong for us to appreciate and admire his example, particularly if he is, as Kidner suggests, the servant who would have inherited had the child of promise never come. He does not seek to sabotage the plan. He is happy to serve the child of promise. This is a good example, and this is a good story. Verse 5 goes on to say, the servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Now, one of the reasons that it is important for us to read the book of Genesis is because it introduces so many of the themes that dominate the entire storyline of the Bible. Just like it's hard to follow a movie if you miss the first 10 minutes, so too it's hard to follow the Bible if you don't read the book of Genesis. Everything is introduced here, and we see here introduced one of the most important themes in the Bible, the theme of godly marriage. Abraham knows that the Canaanites are on a downward trajectory into sin and rebellion that will eventually lead to their judgment and destruction as part of the exodus and conquest. God told him that back in Genesis chapter 15. So Abraham doesn't want his son to be connected in marriage to a person walking on that road. That is very wise. Old Matthew Henry says here, Note, parents in disposing of their children should carefully consult the welfare of their souls and their furtherance in the way of heaven. Now, parents today probably don't have as much influence over who their child marries as they had in Matthew Henry's day, and they certainly don't have as much influence over the process as Abraham does here. But the principle remains worthy of our attention. Parents, use whatever influence you have to steer your children towards relationships 
that will further their way to heaven. Even today, parents exercise influence over environment. Notice that Abraham does not want Isaac to go back to Mesopotamia, lest he be tempted to stay there. It was, after all, a far more civilized and prosperous part of the world. And he also didn't want him to go among the Canaanites for a wife, lest he be tempted to follow them in their sinful ways. Abraham here is a very wise parent. And once again, let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul says. He says, these things were written down for our instruction. So I think wise parents should pay attention to the good example that is being set here by Abraham. Do what you can do. Use whatever you've got. You know, spend that currency in order to steer your children in the direction of a mate that will contribute to their spiritual progress. The text goes on to say in verse 10, Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young women, young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Now, as I said, this is a really long chapter, so we can't linger anywhere for very long. But notice that the servant devised a test that would allow him to discern both the involvement of God and the character of the young lady. Once again, just one more reason to love this minor character. Verse 22 says, When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel, and two bracelets for her arms, weighing ten gold shekels, and said, Please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness towards my master as for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. So the servant sees the hand of the Lord in all of this, and he sees the character of the young lady. So he gives thanks to the Lord. 
Verse 29, Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord, before whom I have walked, will send his angel with you and prosper your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan. And if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank and gave the camels drink also. Then I asked her, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, who milk aboard to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, we should say a word here uh, about all of this repetition. You will notice that in biblical narratives, huge swaths of text will be repeated word for word, two or even sometimes three times over the course of a story. The reason for that is that this was a largely oral culture. You might hear these stories read once a year. So there were parts of the story where details were repeated. This was intended to help you memorize the story so that you could repeat it on command. Always remember that these stories are meant to be heard more than read. The Bible is essentially auditory. It is the external word coming to us from outside of us. And so the stories are written not so much to be read as to be heard. And that's just important to remember. Verse 50 says, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. 
When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us for a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse and Abraham's servant and his men. By the way, just, just a quick word here. But the consent of the bride was commonly required in transactions like this. Sometimes the uber-feminists in our day like to speak of the oppressively patriarchal traditions of the ancient world. But some of that is exaggerated. In, in many cultures, parents worked to arrange marriages that they thought would be in the best interests of the child, but the child was given the right of refusal. To be specific, the girl here is given the right of refusal. This was a common feature of the law in this region at that time. Rebecca saw in these events the hand of God, and she consented to be a part of the program, even to the point of agreeing to marry a man she'd never set eyes on. Rebecca is not a mindless pawn in this story. She herself is a woman of faith. Verse 60 says, And they blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young woman, women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Now, the veil in that culture was a symbol of betrothal and marriage, so Rebecca puts it on to meet her future husband. The marriage was a comfort to Isaac and a means of producing godly offspring. And we'll talk more about that in our next episode. Thanks be to God. Pastor Paul, we're almost out of time here, but from a big picture perspective, what should our listeners be taking away from this story? Well, on one level, this is a story about God's careful, providential stewardship of his own promises. He is watching over his word to perform it. That's probably the main takeaway. But the second takeaway is probably about the importance of marriage. Abraham knows that the line of promise could be threatened by an unwise marital union. And that theme will come back time and time and time again. By and large, the Bible wants us to understand that our faith is affected by our relationships, particularly our most intimate relationships. And so Abraham is going to great lengths to make sure that doesn't happen in the case of his son Isaac. 
All right, that's very helpful. And as you say, we're going to hear much more about that in the weeks and episodes to come. As always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. You also can connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.